If you're a regular listener of the Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast, no doubt you're a lover of authentic Australian wine. And the one-stop shop for authentic Australian wine made in small volumes in very sustainable ways is Different Drop, a proud supporter of the Vincast. Different Drop specialises in wines made by some of the most exciting winemakers in Australia uh, from all the different regions, from a number of different grape varieties in lots of different styles as well. And uh, you can find a, a huge range of wines made in generally small volumes so that it can be a bit harder to find. And you can put together your own little mixed pack if you want to or pick one of the ones that the guys at Different Drop have actually put together for you. If you place an order, usually you'll get the wine in uh, only a few days. So it's a fantastic way to support the Vincast, uh, support the uh, the guests of the Vincast as well. Uh, so if you go to differentdrop.com forward slash intrepid you'll find a, sec- a secret section where uh, many of the guests of the podcast have their wines available. And make sure to put in that special code intrepid at purchase to get a 10% discount discount from the guys at different drops so thank you very much for your support of this podcast and for your support of great australian wine on episode 79 of the vincast i talk with gilles lapalou French-born winemaker extraordinaire and the guy behind Maidenai Vermouth. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it has been fantastic to have so much support uh, for the last uh, few episodes of the podcast. Uh, it's been great to get lots of really good feedback, uh, but particularly uh, it's thanks to the listeners and, of course, all of those fantastic guests that I've had that uh, the podcast actually managed to get to the number one spot, or at least the most recent episode got to the number one spot on the uh, the iTunes charts under the food category for Australia. Uh, very humbled and honoured, and um, I, I really do appreciate everyone getting involved and uh, and listening into uh, the the many different uh, wine chats that I have on the podcast. Uh, of course, uh, I, I love to get as much feedback as possible. Uh, please get in contact with me. Uh, you can email me at thevincast at gmail.com if you'd like to actually uh, make some suggestions about the show. If you'd like to recommend a guest that you'd like to hear about, uh, please do get in contact with me. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, numerous different ways. Uh, and please do head to the YouTube channel as well so you can uh, you can see some videos of me opening up some bottles, uh, often of uh, former guests of the podcast, uh, and just talking about the wine itself and, and, and discussing what I like about it. So uh, head to the Intrepid Wino channel on YouTube. But of course, everything is on the intrepidwino.com website. Uh, but uh, as always, great to have you on board. For this week's episode, I uh, chatted with someone who I've wanted to have on for quite a while, uh, and if uh, anyone involved in the wine business, particularly here in Melbourne, knows uh, he is uh, very much uh, um, 
a raconteur, a man about town. Uh, his name is Gilles Lapalou, uh, originally from the Burgundy region of France. He uh, has lived in Australia for a number of years uh, and until recently was the winemaker at Sutton Grange. Uh, here just outside of Melbourne, um, but also got involved a number of years ago with the Maiden Eye Vermouth brand, uh, one of the most exciting Australian brands uh, you can find. So uh, it was fascinating to hear his background. He's uh, really had an amazing uh, background in, in his experience with wine is is uh, unrivaled in my opinion. And um, I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, please stick around until the end of the episode so you can find out how to get in contact with both Gilles and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Gilles, thank you for um, coming to be on the Vincast in the lead up to, uh, to 2016 Vintage. I appreciate you making some time. Thanks, James. My pleasure. And if you could um, uh, tell me, if you could tell me, if you can remember the first time that wine became a something a little bit more important to you that you kind of thought of it in a, in a new and a different way. Well, uh, you know, when people ask me that, the first answer is I'm probably born in a barrel because uh, <clears throat> my family was involved in wine, uh, both sides of the family. My father was a wine merchant. My grandfather was a wine merchant. Uh, and on my uh, mother's side, uh, they were wine producers. They had vineyards. Um, so I think I've smelt wine prior to uh, come out, probably. So that's a, is that a little bit like Obelix? Because wasn't Obelix dropped into yeah, the barrel yeah, of the magic maybe, potion? Probably a a little bit, except I'm less big than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're always so strong. Yeah, strong <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that started relatively early and, and uh, probably on an sort of unconscious manner because you know wine was always around it was we talk it was talk uh, at the table always about wine not necessarily analyzing the wine but about wine business and stuff like this so it's uh, it's it's always been been around and uh, uh, when I did my studying uh, at one stage I was uh, uh, not going uh, I did some study in uh, <clears throat> in uh, computing and accounting would you believe and um, uh, and then I went back to the wine to study briefly uh, in Dijon, and then I started to work in different places. So that's that's really uh, uh, from the moment where I went back to a university and then started to work. That's that was the the direction. Yeah. But your family, you know, obviously had you know involvement in in wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And so, so when you were young, like, what what was it like, kind of growing up in 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 that way in that environment? Well, it was you know, I mean, firstly the the smell of wine was always around. And, yeah, you know that's something that uh, really uh, stays. Uh, the and you know I'm talking. Uh, I will sound really hard now, but uh, I'm talking uh, in the seventies. Mm. You know, it's uh, uh, so it's it's quite a long. Uh, it's the, the wine industry has changed quite a bit since, and especially uh, uh, that all of that was in uh, south of Burgundy. Um, and which particular area? It's uh, the town was Cluny, but it's, it's in the Macon area. Okay. And um, uh, that was really my father was buying uh, finished wine or unfinished wine, and then putting it together and then selling it in in bottles. So that was the, the main part of the business. It's it's what's called a negotiation. Negotiation. Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's right. 
My grandfather before that was uh, was a negotiant, but was also what they called at the time a commissionaire, uh, which uh, means that he was buying uh, the the wine uh, from the producer, finished or unfinished, and then sell it back directly to another negotiant in Bonn or Dijon or whatever. Oh, like an sort agent. Of, yeah, sort of agent. But he was buying the wine, not just getting the, the commission. So that oh, was okay. a different system at yeah, the time sure. as well. Um, so all of this is is a really a different era as well. Uh, in Burgundy, it's probably not the, the most glorious time in the 70s because uh, uh, the wine was... Uh, <clears throat> the vineyard was certainly not at the level it is now at the moment. And uh, uh, there was still some... Uh, a few, a bunch of few producers making some really interesting wine, but uh, there was a lot of really uh, average wine, and sometimes not necessarily all from Burgundy as well. Oh, really? So that's that. That's the period, you know, the late sixties, seventies, where it was sort of um, probably a bit difficult for for Burgundy. Uh, a lot time. more cooperative wineries. Well, the the Macon area is very big in cooperative because that's uh, it's and still now uh, there's, there's some of the biggest uh, cooperative in uh, Appellation Controlée and uh, all the all the Macon village was still run by cooperative very much yeah. and the cooperative then will not so much bottle the wine as they do now but they were selling the bulk wine to wine merchants who were then exporting or or, or blending etc. So doing. Uh, uh, really mass mass production of, mm-hmm. of wine. Um, were, so, you, were you at all involved in the business when you were younger? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That was my holiday pocket money. <laughs> Very much. I bottled a lot of wines from the age of ten or twelve. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was uh, putting the the capsule or the cork on the bottle or the cap. Yeah, sort of. Uh, it was very much. Um, uh, it was family business, so mm-hmm. quite you know fairly small, and uh, I was certainly. Uh, I, either with my father's business or with my uncle at the uh, in the vineyard, so you know, going there during vintage time, got fond memory of tasting the the fresh pressed juice. And did did he own vineyards or did he? Yeah, they own vineyard. They they produce the grapes they, and they produce their own wine and they were selling mostly at the time bulk wine, but they were selling as well. Uh, they were bottling some wines as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. When did your kind of wine education start? How old were you? Uh, well, it was after uh, at university level because uh, up uh, before that I was really studying on a sort of general education and uh, I was uh, I was going to study engineering and that sort of changed and and uh, so that's that's uh, the real interest in wine came like in my around my twenties more more or less yeah okay uh, so what led you to to studying computing and stuff like that. Uh, just it was a good excuse to go to Paris, I guess. <laughs> you wanted to get away? Yeah. No, it was part of the business as well. My father just uh, uh, was hoping for me to continue the, the business and uh, uh, was getting more sort of business uh, education as well. And so that, that, oh, okay. was, uh, that was the idea. Oh, that, I mean, yeah. So what, what about um, when you were young? What, were you doing much drinking? A uh, lot of wine with water. Uh, yes, oh, okay. but, but you know that was the the drink at at home. Mm. You know we always mix a bit of uh, wine in the in the water, vice versa. Um, there was always you know the odd bottle coming for all the special occasions and all of this. And uh, uh, what what we, we we were very keen to try. 
But yeah, again, really the, and I, I think you have to as well uh, imagine that there was not the frenzy of wine writing and education and all of this that we have now. Mm. It was, I think wine was, was very much just business, a business and a drink. Really. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, there wasn't it was, so much glamour or prestige. Was, exactly. So it's, it's, uh, especially in the little country town in Burgundy, sure. you know, yeah. but even in, even in, in cities, I think it's, uh, I think that, that side of the, uh, show uh, for, for the wine is is uh, is really good for the for the trade but mm -hmm. uh, and it, but it's really exploded uh, in the last what 20 years probably yeah did you feel that you had the opportunity to explore a little bit more like when you were living in paris did you kind of oh, yeah, start it was, to it was more different uh, stuff culturally uh, that wasn't uh, because there was a poor student so it's not so much uh, uh, about eating out and Michelin and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to remember there that that was just the beginning of the first burgers in Paris. So suddenly it was very exotic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was cheap. So, um, um, so no, that, that's not the, the formative year there. It's, it really starts after when I, uh, I did my, um, studying in Dijon, the university. So suddenly I was in a group of people, uh, uh, where we, you know, exchange a lot and that was a start really exploring. Uh, and there was a lot of, was the, that program in, uh, at the university had a lot of different nationality. It was American, Greek. Uh, mm. uh so it was, it was really, uh, a good time really. And, and, uh, uh, as well, it was, uh, in the mid eighties. So that, that's the sort of renewal, renewal of the vineyard in, in Burgundy as mm -hmm. well. That's, it coincide to that sort of, uh, slowly people became more and more interested in the vineyard. And, uh, uh, I mean, you could, you know, still in the eighties, everybody was using uh, herbicide, mm -hmm. and high yield and a lot of, uh, still commercial, um, you know, a lot of, um, carmenure and sure. the yield, etc. So that, that was that, that period that was slowly or was starting to change. Yeah, that's for sure. So what was it that actually brought you back to kind of want to, to work in wine and to, to study wine? Meeting people, basically, that's, you know, you meet the right people, it sort of want, want, it gives you, uh, uh, it's sort of, uh, it's people that sort of, uh, inspire you and, and, uh, um, also it's, um, it's a combination not only to produce the wine or to taste the wine, but it's, uh, one is, is a culture. So it's a, what's going around it as well, which is very fascinating for me. So it's, uh, it's, of course, the finished product is important, but what, what's around it is, is, uh, is as important mm -hmm. for me. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, because, you know, when you, when you make one, you start by, uh, studying geography, studying history. Uh, then you very quickly have to study agronomy, uh, geology, and suddenly it's just, you, it's all the fields. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and then there's a bit of the chemistry and then there's, um, you know, like the barrel making is, is fascinating. The, and then you go on the market, you have to study all these things as well. It's, sure. it's so it's, that's, what's really, uh, for me, the, the interesting part in, in, uh, uh, in this uh, profession, and, and it's really um, sometimes you have to 
you can't be jack of all trade. You have to be sort of focused on what you, you want to do as sure. well. So, yeah. And did you have the opportunity to study all those different kind of areas whilst you were in Dijon? Uh, no, in Dijon was purely uh, sort of, uh, was a quick course, just giving the, the basic of energy. So mm-hmm. it was really chemist focus and uh, there was different aspects in terms of uh, all the visas, but it was quite, quite quick. Uh, points that's all uh, no it started really after because i did a lot of different uh, uh i traveled a lot so uh, I, and i i traveled to work in vineyard i traveled to work in cellars i worked for a wine magazine uh, uh, wine wow. fairs uh, so I've, I've touched a lot of these the one that didn't touch so much is uh the sale because mm-hmm. that's, that's probably not my forte but uh um it's uh, at the time it's suddenly something that didn't interest me, uh, and yeah, it was more all the all the production area and, and the vineyard aspect came a little bit later on. But uh, 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 initially, it was just about the making and the promotion of it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about some of the places that you ended up, and mm. you know, the, so what was was the idea to to work and travel mm. to learn? Yeah. So my my first. Uh, my first vintage was uh, properly where I worked for vintage was uh, 1984. So dreadful vintage, mm. very bad in the, <laughs> was in the Macon area. And I was at the CAF cooperative, the Luni. So it was a really big, uh, really big structure. And uh, I was really just to sort of uh, start to learn about the things and uh, um, during vintage. And uh, it, was, it was always, you know, obviously it's, a lot of the things were new for me, so it's you learn a lot, and uh, uh, and and then from that I just moved on. Uh, the year after, I worked for a wine merchant in Nuit Saint Georges, and then a small producer as well. So always different size, different structure, different uh, scenarios as well. And uh, uh, eighty. So then I, I worked back with my father as well in a in a business. Uh, for a little while, and then 87, that's when I came to Australia for the first time. Wow. Uh, so I did a vintage here. Uh, it was funny because when I arrived, I, I arrived in Sydney. I did a few days at Rosemount with uh, Philippe Shaw. Was this in the Hunter Valley? In the Hunter Valley. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was just, I was, I had a job lined up at Balgoni in Bendigo, but the vintage hasn't started. So waiting for that, I did, I went to the, to Rosemount for a few days. Then, Came down, I worked in Rutterglen at a place called Mont Prior. Mm-hmm. It was quite a funny setup there as well. And then Balgoni started, so I did the whole vintage with uh, Balgoni. Uh, and then I went to the Yarra Valley at uh, Yarra Burn with uh, David Five. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, I worked for a month at Francois. No, <laughs> in the, rec room, in the yes. restaurant, <laughs> and that Very was that was like two year, two years old, three years old, you know. And, sure. Uh, so uh, early days. Yeah. Uh, so I worked there for a, for a month, and then uh, during all this traveling, I, I met uh, an English uh, guy. He's uh, from a wine merchant family, and we we got on well. I had my car. I had a Holden Kingswood uh, HK one eighty. <laughs> so uh, we we travelled from Melbourne to Adelaide and basically visited. I think almost not all, but not far from a lot of uh, vineyard from between Melbourne and Adelaide. So sure. he, had, he had his address. I had my addresses, um, and 
was a, a month-long trip where we explored all the all the Western Victoria and, yeah. then, and uh, then South uh, Australia, Kinawara and Barossa, Barossa, the coast. Claire, etc. Yeah, Far so it was it was a great trip. I did some writing with that, organized some testing back in France, etc. So that that was a that was a really sort of a way of, of for me a good way to explore the, the wine, uh, and and certainly gave me a really wide. Uh, view of, of of wine as well. Can you remember what it was that uh, brought you to Australia? Like what what was what, uh, what was to interesting? Go as far to... as possible from my family, I suppose. Yeah, well, New Zealand's possibly a little bit. Further. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But New Zealand <laughs> didn't produce that much wine at the time. Sure, of course. Fatty uh, Bay only just and, started, and uh, uh, Australia was. Uh, it's it's always as well. Again, uh, uh, you know, meeting people. I met someone. Who came here at the, uh, just a year before me, and uh, he introduced me to uh, Stuart at Balgoni, and that's that's the way it goes. And you know, it's also I mean, it's uh, eighty eighty seven. There was just the beginning of his all this exchange between uh, Europe and and Australia. I think. Yeah. So that's uh, a little bit. Of, you know, the strains were starting to travel more. Yeah, in, yeah, that's in, right. In Europe so, to visit you know, wineries. Uh, I mean, the contact uh, Stuart was probably uh, uh, Stuart Anderson. Is he, he was doing vintages in France and in Bordeaux uh, in uh, in the late seventies. So you know that's really slowly how that that started this uh, this exchange like this. And uh, yeah, I, I stayed six months in Australia. It was really good experience. Uh, met my partner, so it was, uh, <laughs> very uh, good experience. Yeah, so I uh, went back to. Um, Went back to France, did a vintage in uh, in Saint Julien at uh, Chateau Lagrange, and that that was again a, a really different structure and and was uh, uh, it was interesting because it was just been bought by Suntory, sure, and they so they injected a lot of money and uh, so there was a lot of new things to explore. Did you uh, have to learn Japanese? And no, unfortunately, I didn't learn Japanese. I'd like to know, <laughs> but. Uh, um, and uh, they had a consultant called Emil Peno, so it was fantastic as an experience to work with Emil Peno suddenly. So he was coming to taste the wines, doing his commentary, and and you know that you just learn quite a bit through through that as well. So uh, um, then from that, um, I did more wine journalism and wine events uh, back in Burgundy, and then I took off to go to South America. Did six months in Chile. Where that that was another uh, amazing experience. Where I arrived and and uh, was more or less organized, but not so much. And then I arrived and there was a French winemaker in the place I was going to called Los Vascos. It was two hundred hectares uh, in the middle of nowhere. You know, everybody was going around just on bicycle and horses. Which region was this? It's Colchagua. Colchagua. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's the village Perlilio, and uh, the the winemaker was. Leaving, he was going uh, to Brazil, so uh, vintage was just starting. He said, "Here you go. There's 20 people in the cellar. There's 200 hectares. That's yours." <laughs> I hardly spoke any Spanish. So it, was, it was quite an experience. Don't uh, worry, the Chileans and, don't speak much Chile. uh, And you know, I mean, the thing as a time as well, you have to remember there was no mobile phone, no internet, no. and all these things as well. So it's a uh, um, was uh, it was a great experience. I, I really enjoyed uh, Chile very much. And, you know, at the time as well, that place, uh, this is the year where Lafitte Rothschild came and did a joint venture with them and they eventually bought the vineyard. 
so uh, at the end of the six months, they asked me if I wanted to stay to to work for for them. So I said, well, my plan was more to travel. So it it would have been a good experience to work for Lafitte, but uh, um, I kept traveling. So yeah, moved we moved on to that. Just went to. Um, to California and uh, so you, you said we with my partner okay yes. <laughs> so so she came did she so come we, back we, to to France with you uh, no we met back in South America and then we traveled okay. like this yeah, yeah yeah and uh, so that was a uh, uh, little episode in in uh, San Francisco where uh, I, I could not get organized to work in vineyard so I worked in a French restaurant in hospitality sure so that that was my uh, sort of stint there and then went back to Europe did more wine events, stuff like this. And then I went to Italy for a year. So I worked in Chianti uh, with Marce Castelli, who is a uh, consultant for a lot of different places, like Castellare, Castello di Volpaia, uh, et cetera. So that, that was really, uh, that was a, another really great experience where, you know, you just touch on a lot of new things and experiments and uh, and great people, yeah. So that's that. That time was quite uh, uh, sort of uh, formative and, and decisive for for me to sort of continue on that path. Many years ago, when I first started working in the wine industry, I was really interested in learning more about Australian wine, and so I decided to go and visit wineries out in the regions. And probably the best resource that I had available was the Australian Wine Companion. James Halliday has for many years chronicled the best of uh, Australian wine each year in his guide and it was uh, fantastic to have the resource, particularly uh, as he rates the winery, not just the wines. And so I would, you know, try and visit the what were the most recommended wineries for each region and it was a great way to be able to taste lots of different things and kind of get a, I guess, test the barometer for what was of quality. Now, since then, the Wine Companion has evolved into so much more. Uh, there's actually a regular uh, wine publication that comes out with articles and tastings, uh, lots of information about what's going on in the world of wine. Uh, and also uh, the amazing resource uh, that is available digitally on the Wine Companion website. Now, as a special treat for supporters of this podcast, anyone who goes to the Wine Companion website and puts in the code INTREPID30 at purchase will get a 30% discount on any subscription package, which is a fantastic discount and it's really, really a great offer and a good way also to support a fantastic wine communication like Wine Companion. And uh, I hope you will agree this podcast. So thank you very much for your support. Just, just uh, I'll just stop you. In terms of the the journalism you were doing and the, yeah. the sort of the wine events, I'm interested to kind of find out back in the late '80s, was journalism and and wine communication starting to get a little bit more prominent, and and, and how did it take shape in in Europe? I know that's you know in in the UK and in the United States. Um, that you know that was growing quite quickly in in Australia. Len Evans, James Halliday were starting to have a lot more importance. Mm -hmm. But what about in Europe? How did how did journalism kind of take form? Well, it was. Um, I mean, you know, the the mid eighties is the rise of Parker. Uh, sure. Uh, so that sort of point system, that that sort of uh, uh, way of of judging wine, and uh, uh, what I was doing was more reporting on on you know talking about 
Chilean wine or Australian wine was very exotic at the time. Okay. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> and what I was doing also is I was uh, writing about the regions, the people, the, the setup, etc. It was, it was for a very technical magazine called Revue d'Onologie. Okay. So uh, uh, it was like the, the traveling page. And uh, uh, what I was doing as well is sending samples and then organizing tasting back in France for... Uh, it was mostly technicians and uh, and people in the trade, really. in the industry. Yeah. Okay. So, enough uh, for consumers. Uh, so, uh, and I remember, I mean, everybody sort of was like, "Oh, yeah, it's far away, and it's uh, the new world," and and um, <clears throat> a lot of people were really, you know, gobsmacked with some uh, uh, the quality of the wine. I was bringing back. Uh, uh, there was some some grange, but there was some a lot of Montmeri, Balgoni, all these wine at the time. People just. We just couldn't believe it. Mm. And, and at the time, it was interesting because it was the 80s. The wine that probably sort of, you know, fixed more the people was more the, the uh, South Australian style with like a grand thing like this, like big jammy, because that's something that nobody was really doing no. uh, then. Uh, so it's, and it was something that Robert Parker was responding to. Exactly. So that, that was, you know, the, the, the beginning where people get impressed by these, this type of wine. But still was, I think, was a big eye-opener because, you know, as you know, in France, nobody wants to drink uh, f- uh, international wine. They're just uh, basically drinking French wine. I don't even wine. drink Italian wine in France not, very much. Well, Barrow is, is still hard in Paris, I think. <laughs> That's, it's, uh, yeah, so it's, Except for natural wine, maybe. <laughs> yes, yeah. In, in a few but, places. But it's, it's still uh, it's quite confidential. Very that. small. So uh, um, that, that's, uh, that was really... Uh, uh, interesting to bring this new new perspective and and the idea that the terroir and this idea of, of places is not only in Europe mm. as well mm. and, and uh, um, you know the, bringing the idea that these vines that are 150 years old in uh, in uh, in South Australia people couldn't really sure. uh, had no idea about this sort of thing so so um, that uh, that that was. Uh, uh, that little moment and the wine events were really as well, really trade focus wine mm-hmm. event or, or technical as well, mm-hmm. uh, things like this. So, but it gave me uh, again, uh, you know, contact with Pierre Gallet, with uh, Muller Spat, with all these people. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, all these names that are sort of uh, foundation of, of what we know more or less now is uh, I've, I've met all these people. So it was quite, quite interesting to, to, um, uh, to work in this field at the time. And uh, yeah, one year in Italy, and then I was uh, offered a position in uh, Macon to uh, run a, a small uh, domain. So uh, there was uh, I stayed there for about two years and a half, mm-hmm. um, and uh, then uh, I started to uh, I was yeah, I was moving a lot, and uh, I, I was keep moving in another direction where I wanted to extend what I sort of knew uh, to other field and. Uh, uh, I met uh, Jacques Puzet, who is a, is a French uh, analogist that's from that generation of Émile Penot, etc. And he put, uh, he developed a concept called Institut Français du Goût. So that was uh, a test school where uh, you would, uh, we were sort of developing tools to uh, educate young children, so children that are around 10 years old. Mm-hmm to uh, discover the five senses and discover how you use the five senses through food, not wine, obviously, but uh, through tasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
So uh, that program, uh, I was uh, involved early on in that program, and we developed that program in the French school system, and uh, it, uh, sort of it grew quite a, quite a bit. And uh, for uh, for about five years, I was involved in that in uh, basically uh, training teachers or or uh, running events to uh, uh, implement this program in, in French schools. So there's uh, like a ten week program that the kids had, and they they could explore uh, through the five senses, all the tasting, with doing some cooking things as well, or talking about terroir, all these things. So that, that program was very successful, was funded by the, the government and some big companies like Danone, etc. So they, there was some backup as well for uh, serious research as well in, in that uh, regards as well. Was there a particular um, goal in mind for this program? Was it about, you know, um, health and nutrition? Was it about... Well, it came, you know, it, it, it's uh, that's actually what is... Uh, at the source of soul food. Sure. Uh, and again, it comes at the time where, uh, you know, the fast food was just exploding everywhere. And there was so much money in going and, into advertising and, and marketing. And, and uh, you, you could see that, you know, especially in, 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 uh, in a city, in a big city is that the, that, that was what kids will only know it's it's like fast food so mm. very it was a little bit reactionary but also not only a reactionary it was it was a really a, a way to uh, uh, promote you know what our the heritage the tradition that we have and 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 go further than that as well is is how you can uh, study science uh, physiology all these geography etc through through all these mm -hmm. uh, items so it was Really well received by the education, um, by the teachers, by the uh, media as well, and the media as well. And uh, there was some, you know, that's uh, that's more or less at the time where there was a, there's a big event in France called La Semaine du Goût. It's a week of taste, mm -hmm. so that there's a lot of events for that. Um, I mean, some were sponsored by the sugar show or by the milk industry show, but it's. You know, at some stage you need some uh, some funding, and and uh, the message is is not necessarily uh, consume more sugar. It's it's just learn how to uh, smell or to taste, etc. So that that was uh, um, really uh, as well widening experience. And and whilst I was doing that, I was still doing vintage every year with different people. Uh, I know so it'd be okay. Burgundy at Oumier or a friend in. Uh, Chalonnaise or in Beaujolais, etc. So I, I, I still kept one foot in the wine industry, and then uh, most of my work was doing that. And then from that, I developed an, uh, uh, an agency where we're doing uh, uh, with some friends in the Loire Valley, and we were uh, consulting different food company, wine or chocolate or whatever, about tasting and, and all, of, all of this uh, education of taste. Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, so that's, uh, <clears throat> that was, yeah, again, still linked to the wine, but another side of the, of the, the, the wine industry. Yeah. What brought you back to wine completely? So after, yeah, just doing vintage was sort of becoming, uh, and, uh, a little bit like I still doing here, I was still doing like little project myself, little mm -hmm. bits and pieces here and, uh, an old vines that an old vineyard that was not picked because the machine couldn't go there. So I went to pick it and then mm -hmm. made some special wine. And <clears throat> so that this side really interests me a lot always. And, uh, um, 
uh, I thought, well, the the education bit is good, but I'm, I like to make. I like to to uh, to make things. So it's uh, I decided in uh, yeah, it was 2000 just to go back straight full full, full time to to wine. So I was looking at working in the south of France and uh, exploring different, mostly in Provence. And uh, one Christmas, we came here to Australia to visit the family. Um, and uh, uh, Stuart showed me this vineyard where he was consulting. Um, and it was called Sutton Grange, still called Sutton Grange. And uh, <laughs> uh, they were looking for a winemaker. So I said, well, I had a, we just had a, a young girl, that she was five, and we decided, well, rather than going to Provence, we're going to the south of the globe this time. So we, we moved uh, to, to Australia in 2001 okay. uh, to start Southern Grange. Had you been visiting Australia very much? In, yeah, in yeah pretty period? much, yeah. Uh, like, not every year, but uh, every two or three years, yeah. So it must have been nice, you know, for your partner to... Be back, you know, so, more yeah, permanently close exactly. to family. So, uh, and we, we spent, you know, but a uh, lot of traveling in in, in uh, different parts of the world. But uh, uh, we were f- <clears throat> for the last maybe uh, yeah ten years. We were based in Burgundy, and uh, and then uh, uh, now just moving to Australia I was yeah I was feeling right. So um, arrived in two thousand and one here, and you know February it was there was a uh, a slab and a roof, and then some grapes nearly ready. And in March, I was making wine in Southern Grange. And you, you made some, you know, pretty profound changes to Southern Grange. Like, well, there's no change to make because there was nothing before. <laughs> so it was the, I mean, the, Stuart was doing the, he, was, he did the first vintage. There was a little bit of grapes in 2000, but there was no winery. It was made in another place. Okay. And when I arrived, they were building the winery. And as I said, it was just a slab and a roof. Yeah. And, uh, I would just arrive in time to make some changes that was uh, uh, needed and then uh, just created the label, created everything. Sure. Mm. So there was a, that, that was a, a, a really good experience as well because, uh, uh, you know, as much as I was discovering as well the, the, the new place uh, and a place where there was no vineyard before. Mm. Uh, uh, but I had a, a really good mentor with Stuart who knew the region very well. So it was really uh, uh, important uh, that he was here. And then uh, from that, just developed the, the style and very quickly introduced the, the biodynamics. So around 2001, in 2002, the whole estate, uh, the whole vineyard was in biodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just it grew up from, from there. Yeah. So what what sort of philosophy did you kind of bring to the Sutton Grange wines? Well, through through all the the traveling and uh, and uh, all the interest uh, you know that I had uh, in in the wine industry, the wine that always really uh, for me were talking the most, and they were all coming from organic or biodynamic vineyards. Mm. So uh, and. You know, I've got, I'm really interested in botany and gardening and things like this. And when you see this vineyard, it's, they just, they just respire of, uh, they just breathe uh, health. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, uh, so it's, um, uh, this health you, you see not only on the vineyard, but you see it in, in the resulting product as well, in the, in the wine. So it's, uh, um, that was always, 
you know, this, uh, this side was always attracting me. And uh, again, you know, uh, 2000 was really the beginning of, of biodynamic, even in Europe. I think the, you know, the Leflevs started in the 90s, late 90s. It was just a few people just really starting a little bit like this. And mm -hmm. there was not so much talked about. Um, and, and certainly in Australia, uh, you know, there was Podolinsky, but not so much with Vineyard. And uh, uh, I, I tried to approach him, but it was difficult. So uh, then I approached Castagna, who was most helpful, and, and he, he sort of uh, sort of launched me in the right direction. So mm -hmm. it was uh, really at the beginning, um, you had to sort of, yeah, uh, find your way. And, um, and uh, it was an exciting time, yeah. And as far as some of the grape varieties that uh, we're working with and some of the styles of wines you started to introduce a little bit later on, I think, mm. you know, it was very much um, at, a, at a real time period where a lot was changing. This mm. was new energy. So, for example, you know, working with non-traditional varieties, mm. like Italian varieties, yeah. like Fiano, that kind of thing, yeah. or when you started to introduce, you know, the... Um, method yeah, yeah. you know, mm. the pet nut wines. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this was uh, quite an interesting mm. um, well, period. It, it goes back, really back from the beginning as well. It's uh, 2001, uh, so there was a small crop. I can't remember exactly how much we made, but uh, there was Syrah and Cabernet, uh, and that's it. Mm. There was no Viognier yet, and there was no, uh, the Merlot was just starting, and no Italian varieties. So when I saw that there was only two reds, I thought, well, it's quite warm here in summer. We need something <laughs> to drink in summer. So uh, straight away, I made the rosé, and uh, the rosé I knew was the rosé from Provence. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, 2001, I made this pale rosé, dry, savory, in barrel, uh, can tell you a lot of people at the beginning is what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing this? <laughs> and uh, um, people so, still still thought of rosé like Matus. Yes, or, or the sweet style from South Australia. Yeah, well. like Charles Melton. That's um, right, sort of pinkish and yeah. a lot of sugar and and uh, um, so that that was yeah that that was the uh, one of the first things that I introduced there and and then. Uh, you know, slowly it's sort of built up, and and uh, I think now there's yeah there's a good trend towards this this style of wine. Um, then uh, 2002 was a cold year, uh, and we picked quite late, so that that was uh, uh, good to make sort of more savory wines. But then came 2003, and I think this is the year where everything changed because mm. everyone got caught in Australia, but also in in Europe more so probably. And um, uh, that was the beginning of the drought, really. Yeah, as exactly. Well. Uh, so suddenly, you know, we we 2003, we had some really strong wine, really powerful wine, mm. and um, uh, high in alcohol, and that's not really what I wanted to uh, to make. So that's that's where the the reflection starts, where maybe we should plant something that will mature a bit later, that will have better acidity, and and Given my experience in Italy, Sangiovese was immediately on the list. So, of uh, so we uh, and also uh, that coincided with a time where again meeting people like Mario Marson, he was bringing some new clones, so etc. So all these things combined together was just 
perfect timing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we planted the first um, uh, Sangiovese um, in 2002, and um, and then directly after 2003, it really expanded that. And then that was when we started to explore the whites. And I wanted to plant them in Tino initially. And I looked at Fiano, which I discovered when I was in uh, in Italy in uh, at Valgiano, um, testing one from uh, Bruno de Concilis. And I thought, ooh, that's a very interesting variety. Mm. So I always kept that in mind. And then when I saw that the charmers were bringing the the Fiano, perfect. So sure. we, we, we just um, planted that. And it's such a be beautiful variety. I mean, it's... Uh, I think it's suited to the place. Um, good level of acid. It's a one you can work as well. It's yeah, very, very interesting variety. Very exciting variety. Yeah. Were you still making any wines in Europe during during this period of time? Uh, I went back to Italy in 2006 to work with the Concilis to make Fiano and Alianico. Uh, and that's it. So I went back last year or yeah, in 2015. And I just yeah realized that was the first time that I made one in France in 16 years. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, it was good to to go back and, and reconnect with the place. Yeah, it was very, very good. Now, um, obviously, you're not uh, just uh, a lover of wine. You're a lover of different other uh, other forms of um, yeah. mm -hmm. of alcohol, uh, alcoholic mm -hmm. beverages. Mm -hmm. um, where did the Maidenai story start from for uh, you? So it's, the, the vermouth starts from uh, that curiosity that I have with as I said before, when I, you know, always explore little things, little plots that are here. And, mm. and uh, you know, back in Burgundy, I was making walnut wine or, or late harvest Chardonnay or things like this. And, and um, <clears throat> uh, when I was at Sutton Grange every year, I would make some little batch as well, like a floor rosé, like the ice wine Viognier, like uh, the pet nut, etc. So all these little experiments every year just to try. And... Um, I'm uh, a good friend with uh, Vernon Choker at the Gin Palace, and uh, he, he asked me, um, would you like to make a gin? Well, I said, well, gin, it's a distillation. That's not, uh, you know, it's not, I don't have the equipment. It's not my thing. I, I make wine. But I could do something with based on wine. And immediately, that's, that's vermouth that mm. come up to, to mind. So it, uh, and prior he asked me that, I was starting to macerate, in fact, some uh, some leaves that I was uh, picking and then macerating in, in spirits and um, just to try different things to preserve some smells I liked. And, and uh, so that, that gave me the idea to push that with the vermouth. And, uh, and then uh, Vernon introduced me to Sean Byrne, who was uh, at the time the manager of the Gin Palace, mm -hmm. who's also trying little things on his side as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a big session of trying all the vermouth available here. Uh, and then we had another big session where we uh, experiment with a lot of different plants, and that was the beginning of Medony. So, what's what's the the um, the process of making vermouth? There's not one because everybody has its sort of way and recipes. Uh, and uh, uh, vermouth is a wine which is aromatized uh, with uh, botanicals and and uh, fortified with uh, spirit. So, uh, so at, at what point does it stop being wine as far as like it goes through a complete fermentation? Again, it depends. It depends. We, okay. we, we probably one of the rare, I think, or maybe alone as well to have 
to add no sugar. So we fortify the wine during fermentation. It's okay. not, not more complicated to do that, but all the big companies, it's easier. You, you make the base wine and then you add sugar and then you add the spirits okay. and the botanical. So it's, it, you, it's a pro, it's a process that you can reproduce more easily sure. than, more uh, than, uh, what we're doing. And also the, with, with the, my background and my uh, idea of wine as well, uh, for me, the, the wine base was always very important. Um, so, uh, the provenance of the grapes is very important. Mm -hmm. And then uh, obviously uh, in the winemaking is uh, interfered as minimum as possible, adding as, as minimum as possible. So also I think we are one of the rare vermouth where maybe a, a part of if we put the Barocchinato in uh, in that group, but uh, um, to be a single estate, mm -hmm. uh, to have... Uh, uh, vermouth with no sulfur or no filtration or uh, well some no filtration is not true we have filtration but no fining and no addition yeah. of all sorts of things um and so we uh we approach vermouth like like a wine basically like a you know uh, something that's really uh coming from a sense of place mm -hmm. and uh 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 because of that sense of place, uh, that's how the particularity of bringing native plants from Australia just naturally followed on because mm. uh, 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 there's no other vermouth uh, produced with native botanical uh, anywhere in the world. So uh, like from Australia, I mean, so it's uh, suddenly it gives not on top of the wine, it gives the, uh, you know, uh, origin of, of that drink. So it's, uh, but that was the, the strong point we, we developed. And, uh, also then, <clears throat> uh, certainly developing a fresher style, not oxidized wine, sort of leftover. So it, it's really, uh, working on, on, on freshness, fresh in, uh, all the botanicals as, uh, as much as we can. We pick them, uh, fresh as well. Um, so it's, um, yeah, a new way to approach vermouth. I think it's, it, completely different to all the vermouth on the market. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the, um, you know, that's where we want it to be. And in the same way that um, there's been this big change in terms of wine, uh, you know, of course, in the, in the market mm -hmm. as well, I think it probably must be exciting to see that there's this big change in the market for, you know, cocktails and spirits and this kind of thing exactly i mean to, to, to encourage more producers in australia to to be producing absolutely i mean when you product. see the boom in the gin production at the moment and you know when we started uh, we started the vermouth in 2011 late 11 so we first commercialization was january 12 there was no other vermouth here mm -hmm. and and then very quickly there was another one in sydney and then and then uh, two others started as well so it's yeah it's very very uh, encouraging now there's uh, of, uh, plenty of other uh, people exploring. So it's, uh, uh, I think it's exciting time. And, and also, yeah, it's, it, it is a wine. So it's, um, there's, there's, um, there's an approach that can be quite similar to, uh, to the approach of, of a fine wine as well. So, mm. Mm. And you've called, you've got um, other little projects now. You left Sutton Grange last yeah. year, which gave you the opportunity to, I'm sure, go and, you know work the vintage in France. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, definitely the the Maidenie Maidenie Maidenie. I say Maidenie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people say <laughs> Maidenie. Is yeah. very available, particularly uh, in, in Melbourne. Uh, and yep. um, 
And I definitely recommend uh, seeking out uh, a bottle, whether it's in your, you know, favorite bar or if it's in a, you know, a good independent um, wine and wine and spirit shop. Yep. But uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much, Jules, for for coming and, and chatting with me today. It's been very very interesting to hear about more about your background. Um, as far as people um, finding out more about the vermouth and and following on social media, do you have uh, the websites and yeah? So the the the, the Medoni is uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, we've got a website with quite a lot of information on, on that mm -hmm. as well. And, uh, yeah, there'll be other little projects popping up as well. Very um, exciting. Yeah, so yeah. definitely, yeah. um, yeah. follow, follow those accounts and follow Gilles if you can. And, uh, then you'll find <laughs> out all about them as they become a hundred percent confirmed. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you, James. And thanks, as always, for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as The Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow myself on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Intrepid Wino. And on Twitter, you can also follow the podcast at The Vincast. If you go to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino, you'll find the Facebook page where I put lots of links and photos and stuff like that. Uh, and you can follow the Intrepid Wino story on YouTube by going to the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel, where, I, of course, I um, put all of my tasting videos, including uh, upcoming a video tasting one of the Maiden Eye uh, Vermouths. Uh, subscribe to the channel, like a few videos, make a few comments. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Of course, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on any uh, of the various uh, platforms which you can actually uh, subscribe and download episodes, including iTunes and podcasts app on your iPhone. And if you do subscribe, you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and it's also a great way to interact because you can leave a rating and a review, which is great feedback for potential listeners, potential guests, and of course, myself. All that information is available at intrepidwino.com uh, as well as ways you can get in contact with myself uh, and links to all of my guests' websites and uh, supporters as well. Uh, it's been great to have you on board for another episode. Look forward to having you on future episodes as well. But until then, bye.